Uh, we are, of course, in the thick of election season, and we are on the heels of the holiday season, which means uh, you're going to be surrounded by lots of people. It also means you're going to be surrounded by a number of people you probably don't like. Just being honest. Sorry to remind you. Okay. Our theme for this month is kindness uh, and chosen deliberately for this time of the year. Uh, the habit we're trying to cultivate is to do one random act of kindness each week. Those words are chosen intentionally and somewhat playfully. Okay. Um, we looked at the passage, it is more blessed to give than receive. And so much of life, so much of the joy of life is pouring ourselves out to make other people smile. This is a habit that all of us can do easily. It's just remembering to do it. And I hope it becomes a habit. I hope you squeeze in a few more than just once a week for random acts this month. But it would be a good start. It would be a good start. And I hope uh, we get to hear the stories, the testimonies, what God does uh, as he prompts you uh, to show kindness to people that maybe you know well, maybe you don't know at all. Uh, I hope we get to enjoy that this month. We'll put it on now, some interesting studies. When people travel, okay, when they travel for the holidays, on average, they argue 12 times. I don't know where that number comes from. But that's what the studies say. Most arguments in a family are going to break out at 630 on Christmas Day, statistically speaking. It's PM. I guess after all the, the presidents have opened and, you know, I don't know. But that's that's when that tends to happen. And most extended family, when we get together with extended family, we're civil to each other for about 90 minutes before the, the arguments start to break out. Okay? What am I saying? Relationships are tough. Okay? They just are. Family, as much as we love them, can be difficult. And we're a church family. Right? If we've been rescued by Jesus, he has adopted us into his family, which makes us the largest blended family on the planet. Okay. Yeah, he calls us saints. And we are growing and we're changing the spiritual maturity, but we don't always get along. We don't. And, uh, you know, sometimes your family doesn't always get it right. So you might be thinking, oh, no, I just discovered someone in my church family doesn't think like I do. Well, what do I do? I promise you the answer is not to find a church family that looks exactly like you. That assembly doesn't exist, right? It just doesn't. And the only way to, to fake that would be to kind of hang out in a pew somewhere and never talk to anyone. And you could just pretend they're just like you. But they're not, okay? They're not. Uh, now, it may surprise you that the Bible anticipates this kind of tension. That's not a surprise to the New Testament. It's not a surprise to God the Father who is looking after all of his children. But I want to start with a diagram that I found very helpful over uh, the years. We'll just call this the growth of relationships. You meet someone. Maybe you met someone on the walk yesterday. Maybe you bumped into a neighbor. And it's Happy Hill, right? Oh, you live in Pavilion. How long have you lived in this area? Your whole life? No way. You know, oh, and you also like cats. Or you like dogs. Or you like coffee. That's amazing. We're just the same, right? We... we when you meet someone, you find all the points of interest. And as long as there's a number of them line up, you think, that's a, that's a great person. You wouldn't believe the person I met. Right? They were great. So glad they're in the community. Well, if you hang out with that person for a while, we descend into something we might just call Stormy Valley. And what is that? You realize that person is not the person you expected. They're just not. Right? Where you start with commonality, all of a sudden you start to find differences. Quirks in their personality. Quirks is a kind word. 
quirks are things that grate on you, all right? As you spend time with people, you realize they're not what you expected. They're not perfect, you know? They do not have the perfect personality. They have weird ideas. Sometimes they rub us the wrong way. But what happens if you hang out with flawed people? Well, long enough, if you stay in a relationship, we end up on something called family mountain, all right? The relationships get deeper because now I embrace you, but I know who you are. I know your quirks. I know your oddities, but they've become enduring. And you've invested in my life and I've invested in yours. And now we're more than acquaintances, right? We're more than happy-go-lucky, naive, shallow relationships. We're into something far deeper. And the term family fits very well there. Okay? Now, um, as we see this, what happens is we don't all agree, right? You hang out with people on Family Mountain, it doesn't mean you agree or see eye to eye about everything, but you do love and respect each other. And that love becomes deep because you really know the other person. Maybe the greatest example of that is marriage, right? We all married our best friends and we found out they were not the person we thought they were. But over time we realized they really are remarkable. And we love and we treasure uh, those individuals. So I can respect you even if I disagree. And all of us can learn from each other. So God has given uh, me to you and you to me and we're family. And we get to grow together as we all follow Jesus. So today... We're going to be looking at how Paul dealt with disagreements. There are two major passages. We'll probably cover both. One is going to be kind of like a little mini-series for us. Um, Our text today is Romans 14. Romans 14, the beginning of the chapter. This, as you're turning, is, of course, an application section. Paul, the longest, Romans, the longest book on the gospel. And then, beginning in chapter 12, we have a series of applications. So this is the third chapter of application. And Paul writes this, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Well, another esteems all days alike. Each one should fully be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Or one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So today, we want to understand this concept of welcoming others. Uh, to be, we want to be strong in our conviction, and we want to trust God to hold all of that together. Let's pray. We'll examine this text. Father God, this text is remarkably counterintuitive. This text pushes on us. But it unlocks one of the secrets to joy. It paves the way for unity and allows you to change our hearts in ways we didn't even dream possible. Father, I think I can explain the words as they're written on the page. 
but I know I can't change my heart. I can't change the people in front of me as much as we desperately need to walk in this truth. So, Father, would you change us? Would your spirit meet with us in this time that we more than understand, that we embrace, that we live out this truth for your glory, our good? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, as we mentioned, this letter was written to a church at Rome in the ancient world. And in reading the differences, you can't help but smile at the cultural differences. In fact, it's it's a little hard to get our minds wrapped around this being the really thorny thing that Paul wanted to address, which I think makes this passage especially relevant to us. Here we are in the capital of the Roman Empire. There's a strong, unified church. This is a very healthy church. And the people there are really trying to walk with Jesus. But there's a disagreement. There's a standards issue that's come up, and they're wondering which one should be adopted. What's okay to do as a Christian anyway? The conflict in this passage is about eating meat, drinking wine, and observing special days. Now, commentators have worked really hard to understand why this was such a hang-up. And actually, it's difficult because there's nothing in the Jewish law that prohibits any of those things. The text doesn't even explain what the special days were. We could conjecture that maybe Jewish people hanging on to the value of the Sabbath, while newer Gentile believers were embracing Sunday, Resurrection Day is the day they wanted to worship. It's possible. But Peter, or excuse me, Paul doesn't actually elaborate. He just leaves it, and they would have understood, but we miss it. So we we miss the tension. Now, that makes this text valuable because it's not just about ancient customs. Right? This is a crash course in handling differences in the church family. So let's look at how Paul approaches this. He begins by telling us, hey, what you need to do is you need to welcome everybody. All right? Now, to make sense of this, you need to back up and ask ourselves, well, who are these groups of people and what are their motives? Paul says, well, you've got two groups of people in any church family. You've got weak people and you've got strong people. Now, What's very important, all right, if you're going to understand this text, is realizing that neither one of these people, weak or strong, were sinning or breaking God's law. They were both motivated to exalt God and to honor him in their city. But, just like us, when you get people together, there's tension about the best way to worship or the best way to serve God or the best way to be in community. And Paul is concerned about those quarrels and instructs us to welcome our brothers and sisters. So let's examine how that works out. Right? He's not playing referee saying, you're right, you're wrong. He doesn't do that. He says, no, no, no. We gotta, there's a different way to approach the disagreements because they're going to they're keep coming up. Okay? First of all, don't despise the weak. We're weak here means someone that has limited their liberty. They're allowed to do something. In the gospel, but they have chosen not to because they viewed meat or wine as uncommon or unclean. And their conscience actually would not allow them to partake. It it violated their conscience. They said, you know, I I just can't do this. It makes me wildly uncomfortable. Okay? So they made a choice. They had become vegetarians eating only vegetables. Now, We don't have to take Paul's word for it. Paul explains their motive in verse 6. 
Right? He says they've given up. They've made this choice deliberately because they view this choice as the best way they can honor the Lord. And so they're doing this. They're actually throwing the meat out of their uh, out of their refrigerator there. Of course, they didn't have that, but they're, they're, they're not partaking of the meat because they're doing this in thanks to God, because they get to live in a different way. Now, we do have to be careful because um, if we get this text wrong, we're going to get the wrong idea of what Paul's instructing us. These people are not legalists. Go to Galatians for that, all right? They did not believe they needed to do something to earn God's favor. They did not think that abstaining from meat would cause them to be viewed better in the eyes of God. Um, Nor did they believe that they would earn somehow more blessing by having higher standards. These people are perceiving with the very best of intentions. And they feel strongly that the best way they can honor God is by limiting their diet so that they can better serve the Lord. Now, diet's a good thing because most of you know somebody on a restricted diet, right? Now, when you hang out with those people, what do you notice? You notice it's hard to invite them over to your home for a meal, right? You're asking them questions, and no matter how careful you are, you, you, you set the table and you see them kind of catch their breath, like, like, Ah, I tried, you know, I tried so hard to get this one right, you know, but whether it was the gluten or the sugar or I don't know, uh, the garbanzo beans or whatever you said on the table, it was just like, ah, can't, can't do that. Now, if you're hosting people, right, you love them and, and we don't mind adjusting the way we cook to help somebody with a medical need or somebody just working on their diet. We love serving people that way. It's just, it's just hard to do. Right? It's just like, okay, sorry about that. I, I really did my best here. But could you imagine maybe it's a little more difficult, and maybe around holidays and stuff, it's more difficult to accommodate someone who has limited what they can eat just on religious or philosophical grounds. Like, I understand, if you have a peanut allergy, I will do my dead level best to never put peanuts in front of you. Or like in any way, right? I, I want to respect the danger of that. But if you come to me and it's like, yeah, I'm just not into me. Oh, okay, we're going to do our best. But in the back of our minds, you're thinking, eh, it's a little hokey, you know? I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm there. Okay, but these weak people um, are doing their best to honor God, and our struggle is not to despise people that have limited themselves in a way that we don't fully understand. Right? Seems to understand the tension there. Okay, but they're, they're looking at a standard, and they've constructed themselves a, a, a guideline that is going to help them. Now, it's very helpful. This guideline, no doubt, is helpful to these individuals. Now, I'm confident, I'm, I'm absolutely confident as I was preparing this, as we mature in Christ, all of us limit ourselves in some way because there's something that we used to do, and you say, you know what, that's distracting to me. Or when I engage in this activity, or I listen to this music, it, it doesn't do good things for my heart. And we just observe that in, in the pattern of walking with God. You say, you know what, when I do this, I have joy. When I do that, I, I don't. And so what do we start to do? Well, we start to construct standards in our lives to help us maintain our relationships with God. You do that in your families, you do that in your marriage. Right? If your spouse hates your cologne, what do you do? You throw it out and you buy new cologne. Is that a, like a law thing? No, but if you want to be in a relationship, you make adjustments. And so that's what people are doing. These people are looking at their conscience. They're making adjustments that the Bible doesn't stipulate, but they're just making them so they can better be in a relationship with God. We can respect that. All of us do it. 
That's absolutely fine. In fact, necessary to construct personal standards to help keep your heart close to God. But we have another warning. Right? Just as we're not to despise those that are putting up standards to help them pursue God, we're not allowed to judge the strong. Now, culture can be difficult and confusing. Would it be safe to say that our culture is tainted and the last thing on culture's mind is honoring God? And so when you look at that, it would be really tempting to just start pulling out of everything. Like, oh, those people don't love God. I'm just going to pull out, you know, go be Amish somewhere. But the problem with that is, if you remove yourself from everything with questionable origins or association, you can't do anything, right? If you ever run into that, like, there's a problem with boycott culture is that it, it causes us to be so far removed, we, we stop being salt and light. And so we want to be careful that we don't allow our standards to limit the freedom we have in Jesus. After all, it was Jesus himself who declared all foods clean if they were eaten in faith, with thanksgiving to God. So notice that the believers were eating meat. They were also living to bring maximum glory to God, and they were eating meat with thanksgiving, right? So for them, eating meat was an act of worship. God, we're so grateful that you provide this for our nourishment, for our strength. Now, these believers also, hear this, they're not throwing caution to the wind. They're not using their Christianity as a cover, right, to just sort of indulge themselves in sinful practices. They were full of faith. They were celebrating the creation of God, and they were eating the food that God provided for them. They were powerfully motivated to honor the Lord, and they were careful to live in such a way that they could show people what the Father was like. They weren't violating Scripture in any way at all. In fact, they were living uh, in the freedom that God intended for them to have. And so Paul um, calls these people strong, and he warns people with a sensitive conscience not to harass those what God has given them in faith-filled thanks. Now, you say, okay, fine, fine, fine. But it, you should be feeling tension in your spirit, right? Because we're talking in generalities. We're looking at Romans. You say, but I live in pavilion. And blah, 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 blah. You know, like the, the list starts formulating in your mind. And I get that, right? Paul calls the strong people uh, the right ones. It's like they've landed correctly on this issue. But he doesn't tell the weak people just to grow up. Nor does he tell the strong people, well, you know, you could do that, but why don't you not do that for the sake of these people that are touchy? He doesn't say that. Paul does prioritize their unity, but he starts teaching them to sort through the conscience issues. And we're going to get to that next, but before we do, I want us to understand the scope, you know, how broad this test is, but also how narrow, where it's limited, okay? Obviously, we are not talking about things that Scripture expressly forbids. That is not what's on Paul's mind. Right? Scripture is very clear about a number of things, and you want to take God very seriously. We talked about that today. God's an impartial judge. A father. Yes. But he, when he looks at your life, there is an objective standard. Like, this is worth doing. This is not worth doing. This is life-giving. This is toxic. And, and Scripture gives us really clear guidance, and you want to take that seriously. You ignore that at your peril. Nothing good happens when we violate God's law. Okay? You can't hate people to the glory of God. You can't be immoral or disregard God's word. There's so many people that use, you know, this term Christian liberty to just live any way they like, as if God didn't have a say in the matter, which is foolish. That's futile. 
There are people, however, that will tell you to stop judging them because um, they just want to ignore God's instruction. Stop judging me is basically code for I don't want to know what God thinks. You know people like that, okay? I hope they're not here. But God has been very clear, and we need to continue to follow him and not live in selfish and toxic and futile habits. We don't want to hurt the people around us or ourselves. So we can't ignore truth because it makes someone uncomfortable. We're to be bold and joyful and faithful people who fearlessly follow our Savior. But what happens when we disagree? Right? I get to hang out uh, with a number of pastors, and none of us, not a single one of us, agree completely on anything. I've not met the person I completely agree with. It, it just doesn't happen. So we learn a lot, we learn a ton from talking to each other. Um, but conscience issues, I mean, they span everything, don't they? From our worship to how we eat or dress and so many things. And I'm being general on purpose as we kind of wade into this topic Obviously, believers trying to honor the Lord disagree about the right way to really draw the line. So what is Paul's advice for sorting out those differences? Well, he says, be convinced you're right. I love this advice. I love it because it's shocking. Paul is saying, hey, you should be um, fully convinced about your actions. You say, well, what on earth does that mean? Well, look down in your text there at verse 23 said, but for whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not of faith, for whatever he does is not from faith is sin. He says, so whatever you choose to do with your life, you need to be spot on convinced this is the right thing to do. Now, just, can we just pause? Doesn't that seem like it would make everything so much worse? Doesn't it? Um, you've got two people deeply entrenched in their position, and it just doesn't seem like they'll ever have a productive conversation. I mean, fully convinced people are argumentative, they're combative. I mean, who wants to talk to people that are just going to be dogmatic with you, right? So the culture is saying, hey, you know what, there is no truth. We'll all just kind of get along doing our own thing. And Paul says, no, you must not do that. That would be sinful, <laughs> okay? You need to be convinced of what you're doing. And it's really good advice. It goes a long ways to solving the problem. But obviously, we've got we to understand what he's driving at. So he starts by saying, live in faith. Now, I'm grateful for this particular point um, from Pastor John Piper. He explains that we need to be convinced of three things. So living in faith, you need to be convinced, absolutely convinced of three things. So you're making your choices. You're making your standards. I'm going to live in a certain way. What do I need to keep in mind? Well, what I'm doing is not sinful. As far as I understand the word of God, my conscience is clear. What I'm doing does not break God's law. Second of all, what I'm doing is honorable to Christ. I'm making this choice because I want to show people my God is awesome. And by doing this, I get to show them what he's like. Lastly, what I'm doing right now is the best choice I can make. Given these circumstances... Right? I, I'm sure I'm not violating God's law, and I am obeying what he told me to do. And I think I can make God look awesome by making this choice. Now, it's not wide open, because our circumstances, our strength, our personality, they're all different. But looking at myself, looking at what God's given me, I can make God look awesome by doing this. And you'll land there. So look at this list. The focus is on listening to God and displaying his glory or making him look awesome. 
And there is joy. There is absolute joy to be discovered in this list, right? Because when we think about God's revealed word, um, we're reminded that we get to live in a completely different way. Remember, not so long ago we looked at that. We don't have to live in toxic habits anymore. We get to live in a dramatically new way. We get to live impossible lives through the power of the Spirit. So we set aside the things that God says no to because they'll harm us, they'll harm others, and we get to step into impossible new rhythms of life that build thick relationships and display the glory of God. And that's exciting, Amen. right? We don't be regretful, like God's so mean, I never get to have any fun. Stop that. God says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Come, be satisfied in me. So we're, we're not fearful. We're living in faith, but we're also living for God's honor. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This text, we'll look at later, comes from the other Christian liberty passage. And Paul says, hey, everything you do can be done in a way that displays God's perfection. And what's most important, when you make your choices, when you build your standards, you want to show people this is what God's like. And he's amazing. I want you to know how good God is. Now, what's important, maybe, as you're building these standards, is that our comfort is not in view. We're going to get there in a second, okay? It's not unimportant, but we need, we need to take these things in order, all right? So when you pick out your outfit, you want people to think about God. You don't want thinking, people thinking that you are like some sort of fashion maven or diva, nor do you want them to think that you're homeless, all right? Somewhere in the middle. Why? Because you don't want them obsessed with, my word, you just have an eye for fashion. That is a, that's amazing. Right? He said, all you talk about is your shirt. Somehow we've, we've missed God. And that's not, man, I, I get to live every day showing you how awesome God is. And I don't want you to get hung up on my tie. There's no danger in that, okay? Um, but hey, my concern is, I'm so excited. I need you to know what the Father is like. And you know what? My Father is good. He's given me warm clothes that are reasonably in fashion, right? My outfit should display, I have a father that cares for me. And it should also display, I really love my father. All right? We show people, um, right, what God is like through our worship. And we don't do that by, you know, proving to them how hip, you know, our worship set is, nor do we bore people to death with really stodgy music. What are we shooting for? Well, we're adjusting to where you all are at so that what we do communicates the glory of God. And we don't want to distract you one way or the other. That's not a perfect science. That's an art. And we work at that every single week. So when you discuss, you know, what's going on with your clothes or your music or entertainment choices, even your diet, what people should hear from you is what the Father's like. They should not hear a 15-point lecture of why you're right and why everyone else is stupid. Okay? Can we see that? Like, standards are not clubs that we beat people over the head like, what's wrong with you? Do it my way. There's no God in that at all. Okay? So, um, we should be striking people by how loving the Father is towards us, how much we love him and how that drove our choices, which leads us to a third consideration, and that is give thanks for everything. Ah, oh, this is good, right? We need to be convinced this is the best choice we could make in the current situation, and I'm going to use slightly different language here. Can you see how these things work together? 
If you can immediately thank God that you have the privilege of making this choice, you're on pretty safe ground. Right? Because you can't say, God, I'm so thankful I get to have an affair, you know, against my wife. Obviously, that doesn't judge. Okay? It doesn't. Right? But as you're picking out your outfit, as you're sitting down to breakfast, as you're joining your church family, you're saying, God, I can't believe you've given me the privilege of doing this, to display the world how good you are, and how I'm just so grateful. Right? If your life is lived in joy, it will guard and guide your conscience. Now, there's a reason this comes third. Because I have talked to people, you've talked to people, say, you know what? God doesn't want me to be unhappy, so the obvious choice is to do this. And they say something really outlandish. Like, it's just God's will for me to leave my spouse. No! Obviously not. We start with the beginning, right? I'm living in faith. I'm not in sin. I know what God says. But my, my goal is to display the Father to the world, and I'm giving thanks for the privilege I have to do these things. Can we get that? Serving God is a get-to. Never, ever a have-to. Have-to was was solved by Jesus at the cross. You're robed in his perfection. You'll be judged based on his record, not yours. Everything you do is a get-to. It's all glorious. So we want to be convinced this is the best choice. Um, So we think of all the things the Father allows us to do. He gives us good food. And you get to select the things you enjoy. Some of you might like Chinese or Mexican or Thai. It doesn't... Man, the Father... Gives you resources so you can enjoy all of those things. He's filled his word with music. We live at a time when you can carry your favorite musicians with you in your pocket. Isn't that awesome? And we get that diverse taste. That, too, is awesome. He's given you a church family to love and grow. And he's trusting you with his resources that you get to spend to make him look awesome and to serve the people around you. I think that's amazing. So you can see that if this is your spirit, you're not going to have a heated, ugly argument. Even if you run into someone that's reached a different conclusion, right? If both parties are convinced that what they're doing is not sinful, it will display God's glory, and they're giving thanks for what they do, it's going to be a good conversation. Notice in Romans, in our passage, it says that God is pleased both with the man who eats and the one that abstains. Why? Because they're both living in faith. One receiving a good gift, one saying, no, thank you, I think is a better way for me to follow my father. Verse 6 says they're both living to honor the Lord. And can you imagine what kind of beautiful community we would have, the kind of joy we would have if we were fully convinced that all of our choices were honoring God? I'm going to be honest, most of the tension comes because we know that's not true, and our consciences are screaming at us. But man, when our consciences are at peace, there's joy. So Christianity is not a test, okay? It's not a test like where you got a hundred questions, if you get them all right, you're an A-plus Christian, while the rest of the church family, they're, they're maybe a B-minus, right? Like, my standards are perfect, and when God looks at my life and says, ah, finally, she gets it right. That's, that's not what's in play here. Nor is Christianity the kind of test that's kind of pass-fail. So we find where the line is, but all the real funds in the world, so we lean as far as we can without God sending us to hell. Both of those views are horribly deficient. They do not understand the generosity of the Father. Okay? They're both so, so very wrong. Christianity is about developing a relationship with the God of the universe, and God is not holding out on us. He offers us the best, best life possible. Now, 
We're talking about relationships. So relationships between me and God and you and God, they're going to look different. We pray in different ways. We honor God in different ways. But God can be honored in all of those differences. Right? God is honored by our faith-filled response to him, not because we performed in exactly the right way. Silly illustration, but you know you have two married couples that can both display their love for each other, even though they went to different restaurants on date night. Nobody questions that. Like, really? You went to Starbucks? Are you still married? You know, nobody says that, right? Because we understand that our preferences and what we enjoy gets filtered through our relationships, and they look differently. Because you're different, and I'm different, and that's okay. Now, once again, we've got to pause, because Paul is painting a best-case scenario. All right? This does not often happen. Because when... Uh, there's tension in the church family. Often not both parties are right. Often both parties are wrong. Right? One person stops pursuing God, stops finding satisfaction in Him, and starts, you know, compromising, and starts trying to find satisfaction in things that the Bible says are absolutely toxic. And we all see that. And then somebody that's just filled with pride and convinced they're right about absolutely everything comes and blows that other guy out of the water. What's missing there is the whole part about Honoring God, right? That's an ugly, ugly thing. Because neither one of those people show the goodness of the Father. Neither one of them are living a life of faith-filled thanksgiving. In some cases, we don't want to know God's opinion. Or we're terrified that if we mess up, God's just waiting to punish us. And you see, both of those are distortions of the truth. So, whatever we don't know, to do whatever, whenever we're in a situation like God, I don't, I don't know what to do. We just reach out and we touch the nearest scriptural principle that we have. We seek to show what the Father is like, and we live in joy-filled gratitude. That'll guide you pretty well. The Spirit will lead you. So let me make a shocking statement here. If your life is not filled with joy, you're doing something wrong. Okay. Just going to insist, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That does not mean life is easy. It doesn't mean it's pain-free. Life is often painful. Life is never easy. But I promise you, right now, God is up to 10,000 things in your life. He is working for your good, and there's always a way to praise Him. And there's always a way to live out of living hope that keeps you going. It's always within reach. You're going to need the Father's perspective to make sense of the very painful and dark times of life. Or even just the confusing ones. But when you're known by God, and you've been forgiven by Him, and you're daily enjoying His love and generosity, it's really easy, actually, to invest in people that are different than you. You can tell them. In fact, you should tell them why you do or don't do some activity. You should discuss how uh, your choices have allowed you to draw closer to God, and then listen to them on why they're doing something different. Right? Discuss scripture and your current situations. Learn together new ways to love the Father. Right? Because you can grow through someone's strong, joy-filled faith. You can let go of a fear that's held you back from something good. Or you might look at someone with strong faith and say, you know what? I think I need to eliminate something out of my life because it's holding me back. And I can see that through your choices. Do you see how when we live this way, we actually strengthen one another? We can have honest conversations, but we can grow. Not like, I kept all the rules, but no, I feel I'm closer to God because of you.
Because watching your life and what you do, we don't live in fear. Instead, we get to redeem our culture and we celebrate the God, good things that God is doing in our world. So when God lives through us, we redeem everything. We redeem our work and our worship and our play and family time and our holidays. We see God's goodness everywhere. Everywhere. And we're driven to life of faith-filled gratitude. You say, okay, that all sounds fine. What about all those people in the church family? What about the immature and the careless and the uptight and the grumpy and the clueless? What about those people? Okay. We'll end here. Your job is not to bring them all to your way of thinking. You get to encourage them. You get to show them how to thrive in Christ. But Paul ends with the most incredible thing, and that is, uh, we trust God for change. Um, Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In other words, people in your church family, they don't answer to you. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Oh, this is good news. We're not anybody's judge. We never get to condemn people for the choices they make. Ever. Okay. Let that one sink in. You don't fully know someone's history, their personality, their capacity, or what the Spirit is doing in their lives. God perfectly knows all of those things. Amen. Now, careful, that doesn't mean you don't get involved. All right? What it does mean we don't write people off or belittle them. We show them a better way to live. And we show them through Scripture they no longer have to live a life of futility or seek satisfaction in things that will enslave or destroy them. Right? So I'm not the judge. God is. I do get to take his word and say, hey, God's been reasonably clear about this. That's not my words. Those are God's words. And I invite them to say, hey, what are we going to do about this? Right? See, that's not me judging. I just say, hey, God made something clear. I'd just like you to be aware of this. You need to be aware of this. Right? So that's how that dynamic works. We show miserable Christians how to have joy in their Savior by offering them examples from our own life. We show people that are wandering out in destructive ways saying, you don't have to live that way anymore. There is satisfaction in a Savior that can free you from giving your heart to something that doesn't love you or is not permanent. As we work with people, we are reminded that God is the one that upholds all of us. God is the one that holds and guides us, and it is the power of the gospel that transforms our lives. Yes, God has given us free will, so don't expect God to kind of zap the people in your life into righteous robots. It's not going to happen. God can do that. He just so rarely does. He prefers to woo us with his love. Um, to move us from unbelief to belief. And God is the one that sustains you. Not your self-discipline, not your ridiculously high standards. We're not changed by rules. We're changed by the beauty of Christ. So if you want to help someone thrive, show them the Savior. And then teach them and walk with them. God will not fail his children. And he wants to use you to strengthen the rest of the family. We finish this message with the most precious promise of all. And that is that God is able to make us stand. I want to quote another pastor here because it's just so good. He says here, Paul goes beyond the statement that believers have a judge in heaven. He now says every believer will be upheld in judgment. Every believer will stand erect and accepted in the last day. 
the weakest believer you know will stand glorious and vindicated and loved and forgiven and righteous and accepted in the last day. Friends, that's why we have this communion table. We're invited by Jesus to come as one family, all together at the table. Why? Because we're all forgiven. We're all adopted. And no one comes uh, before they're perfect. Or no one comes perfect. No one comes better than anyone else. We come welcoming each other as brothers and sisters. I do want to welcome you all to this table. Because if you've desired to follow Christ, he's rescued you from his sin, then the table's opened to you. And it's a family table. And we come here to be strengthened. I invite the gentleman to get ready. Yes, a few more remarks. I do need to warn you, if you're here today and you have no interest in following Christ, if you think, you know what, there's a better way to live than following the king of the universe, you want to be the God of your own life, then I'm going to urge you not to participate. That would be a lie to yourself and others. What's going on is you've not yet been conquered by the love of Jesus. You've not tasted the freedom he's offering you. So can I beg you this morning? Don't take a cup. Take Christ. Recognize the freedom that he's offering you. There's information on the back of the hand. I will talk to you anytime about this most important thing. We are free. We are loved. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your failures. Accept his perfect record. And then follow him. And become part of the family. For the rest of us, I want us to focus on our family today. All right? We do communion once a month. But we need to talk to the Father about this passage. Right? It's the stout stuff. Confess where you've been living out of fear or selfishness rather than thanksgiving. Confess where you have either despised those that seem so cautious or judged those that seem so lax. Ask God to give you a heart for your church family and the clarity to know where you can help your brother and sister. Just take that next spiritual step. You pray privately, and then after a moment, Jonathan Holland will thank the Lord for the bread.